At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Let's go. Welcome to Citizen. We have a very special guest today, Dr. Gene Twangy. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Wow, got it right. How about that? On the first try, too. Just full disclosure, I did have to ask you how to pronounce it on the way in here. Um, so let's, let's jump right into this. You are a uh, researching psychologist and... You've done a lot of stuff that's super interesting. I think a lot of people have probably seen you um, on various podcasts and news interviews and things like that. Um, tell me a little bit about the work you do. Yeah, so uh, my goal is to try to find the real differences among generations. So boomers, Gen Xers, millennials, Gen Z, and use as much data as possible to figure out what the differences are in terms of you know, how when you're born affects your life and your personality and your values across many different areas. And um, I'm curious about that. Is it because a lot of there, there's, you know, a, an old phrase about soft times making soft men and so on that, that it has become pretty popular these days. Um, but is it just that? I mean, is it just how much is it because because to me that sounds like it's most of life and our attitude is ultimately a function of resilience right because people go through things they learn to be resilient and then they you know live what we would most people would consider to be better more productive lives if they've gone through that stuff and then people who uh, are essentially what trust fund kids are right seem to have quite a few problems is it is that close or is it is it is that reductive there's there's a lot of influences and the main thing that i focus on is you know traditional theories of generations focus on major events so how old you were when september 11th happened or the vietnam war happened or any other kind of big cultural event and those certainly have an impact on people but not as much on things that impact day-to-day life and so the thing that's had the biggest impact is technology 
So not just smartphones, not mm. just social media, not just the internet, but all kinds of things from better medical care to washing machines to air conditioning. It completely changed how we live. And so that's why living now, for example, is different from living 100 years ago or 50 years ago or even 20 years ago. And, you know, only the Sith deal in absolutes, I guess. But is it good or bad, you think? There's always going to be some of both. Always. Uh, every time has its upsides and downsides. Every generation has its strengths and weaknesses. So, you know, I, I actually, my philosophy is that you lose a lot when you just look at good versus bad, because there's a mm. lot that has trade-offs. There's a lot that's neutral. Um, and most of the time there, there's some of each. So tech, technology and its effects are a great example that we live longer lives, that we have been able to move away from taking so much time to just survive because we have so many labor-saving devices and so many conveniences and communication is so much faster and transportation is so much faster. Yet, is technology really giving us everything that we need to thrive as human beings? And that's the downside. That's where we have not done as well in recent times, that we have a lot of mental health issues, particularly among young people. And many of those co-occurred right with advances in technology for, I think, some pretty good reasons. You know, if you start spending a lot more time on social media and a lot less time with your friends face-to-face, -face, not a good recipe for mental health. That's exactly what has happened to teens around the country and around the world. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I wonder, uh, like, I'm sure you, we've all heard the phrase, uh, idle hands or the devil's play thing, right? And I think that might be... Um, I think that might be something that happens. Although, you know, there've been periods in, in, in history where things have calmed down relatively and people have started to look inward more and we've gotten, you know, great leaps in philosophy and things like that and, and learning about the self and all this stuff. So it's not always intrinsically bad. I wouldn't, I would say, but, um, I don't know that we've, I don't know that we've advanced in a way like we have in the last 25 or 30 years before in human history. I mean, it's, I, honestly, I can't think of a period where people, where there was a, a type of technology that kind of put an end to face-to-face -face interaction between people, right? So you say that, um, you say that every generation has its strength and, and weaknesses, and people in my generation are very critical of Gen Z. What would you say the strengths of Gen Z are? So... One thing is Gen Z is more likely than previous generations to say that they want to help other people. Hmm. So that's clearly a strength. Uh, until recently, they expressed a pretty strong work ethic. Then in 2021, that kind of backed off uh, in, the, in the, the big national surveys of young people. We'll see where it goes in, in the future. Um, they embrace uh, difference. So that can absolutely be a strength if done right. So I do think they have some strengths for sure. Um, oh, and one other thing I'll mention is that they are voting at higher rates than young adults did in the past. So that's a positive if they're participating in the political process more. Hmm. And why do you why do you think that is? Do you think uh, uh, it seems like for most people in America right now, politics dominates more of our lives than it did before? But 
Uh, do you think it's just that, or do you think that maybe there's some sense that because when I when I was younger, I didn't feel like I necessarily had to take control of my life at all. I just kind of was winging it. You know, I think most people um, when they're younger, I mean, you have a plan. I went to college and joined the military and all that stuff and, and did the things that I wanted to do. But I didn't feel like I needed to reclaim my space at all, You know, if that makes any sense. And I've, it seems like these kids um, have may, maybe it's just the self-awareness that we didn't have when we were younger, but it's, they, they look around and see that things aren't necessarily going the way they want. And there's an avenue that they can engage in that process and change things. I think that's a lot of it. And I think, you know, that that's going to be something to really watch in the next few years is, you know, Gen Z is much more pessimistic than the millennials, young, the millennial young adults from 15 or so years ago. You know, we had a really pronounced generational shift from optimism to pessimism among young people. And if that pessimism goes hand in hand with hopelessness and nihilism, and there's nothing we can do and everything is just terrible and you can't convince me otherwise, that's not going to be good. But if it goes in the direction of, you know, I'm looking around seeing things that I need to change and they're willing to go and vote and be active and try to change things, I, I would argue, within the system in a way that's productive, that could be a very good outcome. Yeah, I like, uh, uh, I like the idea. I think it's <clears> – <throat> I, I caution people on uh, who, who um, have been critical of a lot of the social movements that have happened over the last few years to not just – not be dismissive because you don't necessarily agree with the tactic, right? Because it doesn't necessarily – where there's smoke, there's fire, right? If people are agitated about something, there is an issue there, and you should go check it out. Just because they might be flailing about and being uh, irresponsible in the way they approach it doesn't mean there's not a problem. And it doesn't serve anybody to dismiss a real problem because the person trying to solve it is wrong about their solution, I, I think. Um, and, you know, we have this tendency to kind of write kids off in that way where it's like, oh, there's, there's a dumb kid. When they grow up, you know, they'll be wiser, smarter. They'll start to, you know, they'll, they'll have a better sense of the real world. But one thing that's happening over the past generation and a half or so is that kids, people are not becoming more conservative as they get older anymore. There used to be a, a, pretty, a pretty steady trend line when it came to politics in the West is that uh, I think Churchill's got some kind of quippy quote about it, but it's, it, people get, tend to get more conservative more uh, broadly speaking, as they get older, and that's just not happening anymore. And I wonder why that is. Where are you getting that? Because um, I think there's still some truth to that. Uh, to people getting more conservative? Yeah. Um, I believe it was, uh, let's see, Rasmussen poll, I believe, that, okay. I, that I read. That, that, and so I think The Atlantic wrote the, the article. I'd have to go find it. Okay. But yeah. It's, uh, it, you know, it, it could be. So there's a really um, interesting data analysis came out a couple of years ago. It said that the popularity of the president, the popularity and party of the president mm -hmm. when you were a teen and a young adult can really shape your uh, politics going forward, or at least, mm -hmm. you know, push it by a couple of percentage points in each generation. So Gen Xers, for example, grew up when Ronald Reagan was very popular and are still more conservative and Republican than the cohorts next to them. So that's that's interesting. And then for millennials, they were young during Obama, so maybe that's why they're not as conservative. And then for Gen Z, um, who the young adults and teens right now, 
it's, you know, you really wonder what's going to happen because neither Trump nor Biden has been particularly popular. <laughs> so you got to wonder what's going to happen with their politics. I think it's, it's kind of hard to say, you know, from, from that theory, how that's going to work. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. Uh, I, I, what I would, so, uh, God, who was it? I can't remember where the, uh, I think it was uh, a Marist ABC poll, but um, from, from last week. But essentially what we've seen is that over the last five years, about 25 to 30% of people in the, that are under 45 have stopped identifying themselves as Republican or Democrat and, and started identifying themselves as independent. About 45% of, the, of that age group has done that. And I wonder if that's real or if they're just kind of being uh, misanthropic about the process. I mean, I know a lot of people do feel politically homeless, and you're, you're definitely right. The last two presidents have not been particularly popular with, with, with their core, I guess, to some degree, but outside of that, not very. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that, that, that trend toward people being more likely to identify as politically independent has gone, gone for a while, and it's part of a general trend of you know, distrust in institutions and more individualism, more focus on the self and less on bigger groups. So, and that's particularly shows up with with younger adults. But, you know, in in today's climate, I think you're right to ask that question of, you know, okay, you say you don't want to belong to the party, but things are so politically charged now. You know, there are a lot of people who identify as independents who actually do lean, lean one way or another. But also because things are so polarizing, there are a lot of people who are like, man, you know, stop this train. I want to get off. Mm. Uh, I, I don't even want to, I don't want to have anything to do with either party. I don't want to have anything to do with either the left or the right because they're both crazy. I hear that sentiment ex- expressed a lot. And, and if you track that line of thinking, where does it end? I guess. I mean, uh, if we're trying to, uh, you know, as, as people of, a, of an older generation, we're trying to keep people engaged in the process. And it does look like the younger people are, are more engaged than even we were, but um, trying to keep people engaged in the process in a positive way and not be quote unquote blackpilled and just kind of divorce themselves from the process, I think it's pretty important. I mean, Plato was pretty clear about it. If you uh, don't take part in your own governance, you're doomed to be ruled by fools, right? And it's, it's a giant power vacuum that has a big effect on your life. Um, but it does seem when I pay attention to Gen Z politics, it is a lot of the hero worship that I saw around Trump, where it's like not necessarily a bulleted list of things you agree with the person on, but it's like, oh, I like that guy. You know what I mean? And that's what people said about Bush, too, when he got elected, especially during the reelection campaign in 2004. It was like, yeah, that's the kind of guy you want to have a beer with. It was like, I'm not trying to elect a guy to be my friend. I want him to be the fucking president. You know what I mean? So. Uh, what what's the responsible way i guess for us to handle this like how do i how because i there's a lot of younger people that watch this show and i wonder how i'm supposed to talk to them about that to keep them engaged in the process i i mean i do make it a point to say you know principles matter people don't not that people Mm -hmm. in the country don't matter i mean you should you should align yourself with principles and not a personality essentially Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i think i think there's a number of things so you know, one one thing that um, really stunned me in, in writing the book was that just really pervasive negativity. So there was a poll a few years ago and it asked things like, do you think America is a fair society or an unfair society? And a lot more young adults said they thought it was unfair compared to older generations. Um, There's a, a one of the 
other questions in the poll was, do you think the founders of the United States are better described as heroes or as villains? And four out of 10 young adults said villains compared to only one out of 10 boomers. So, you know, that shows you negativity about now, negativity about events, you know, 250 years in the past. And again, you know, negativity isn't all bad, but if it leads to that idea of like the modern hellscape, which is kind of what the online conversation so often is like, everything is terrible. You got to wonder where that's going to go. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I think we can see to a large degree where it's going. Now I've, I've spent quite a bit of time in the Middle East and, and that is a, that is the kind of attitude that becomes pervasive in a society that makes it very easy to take young minds and make them think and do horrible things, right? I mean, we see that nihilism in, uh, uh, in, in terrorist groups. We see that nihilism in, in gang violence. We see it now more commonly in things like mass shootings and, and suicide, uh, particularly amongst young girls, which is interesting, right? Because typically girls trail men in suicide by quite a bit, but those numbers are starting to catch up, particularly amongst teenage girls. Now you do a lot of work on, you know, understanding tech and smartphone. I think you've you've written quite a bit about smartphones and their uh, that's right. their effect on people. Can you walk me through some of that and some of your findings? Because I think that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I I work with these very large surveys. Uh, a lot of them are of teens, and I started to notice in the data around 2012, 2013 that more and more teens were starting to say they felt lonely and left out and more were starting to say they felt like they couldn't do anything right or that they didn't enjoy life and those last two are classic symptoms of depression mm -hmm. and first i had really no idea what might be causing it i thought it might be a blip but then it kept going uh the u.s economy was improving over that time so it seemed unlikely that was it um and so i puzzled over this for a really long time then i came across some polling data and things kind of started to click into place. It just so happens 2012 is the first year the majority of Americans owned a smartphone. And in these surveys of teens too, it's also around the time that social media use went from something about half of teens were doing every day to something almost all of them were doing every day. And it kind of hits that tipping point of about three-fourths on social media every day, again, around 2012. So also, that's also the time when teens started spending a lot less time with each other face to face. So this is not a good formula for mental health. If you're spending a lot more time online, a lot less time with friends face to face. So it seemed clear that that might have something to do with the huge increase in teen depression. You know, I think, I think it's important to note too, that there's a common perception now that the teen depression is due to the pandemic. Teen depression doubled between 2011 and 2019 even before the pandemic. So this is a long-standing issue. This is something that started more than 10 years ago. And I think smartphones and social media are the most logical explanation because they are the thing that had the most impact on teens' day-to-day -day lives. You know, the way that teens spent their time outside of school fundamentally shifted around that time. Hmm. And I, I recall um, from being around, you know, younger kids, uh, children of, of friends of mine and things like that, um, kids being all in the same room and on their phones at the same time, right? So even when they mm -hmm. were in close contact That's with right. one another, they're still communicating through these devices uh, across the room, which is, you know, I mean, I, that that's, seems wild to me. I, I would never, because we all grew up outside and stuff, but, you know, um, mm -hmm. it, it is, it becomes very obvious 
what that does to people. I think if you if you if you really think about it, right? I mean, uh, to me, it kind of conjures up uh, maybe uh, autism spectrum disorder, where people don't mm-hmm. learn those social skills, and then it's it's just a it's a snowball effect. You get less and less confident with your social skills as you don't perform them over time and then uh, you're sitting in a room by yourself and wondering why no one wants to talk to you it's like well you got to go talk to people you know what i mean but it's hard it's a hard thing to tell somebody that's depressed to motivate somebody that's now depressed because of that stuff right so it it is oh boy it's so bizarre to me and i've got um a lot of uh a lot of parents these days. I mean, we, so we were, I guess, latchkey kids is, is what we're referred to. Our parents and our, both parents were in the workforce in a majority right. for the first right. time. The, the Gen Xers were the first. Well, I mean, boomers, a lot of boomers experienced that too, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but then your generation and then mine, we spent a lot of time at home alone, but most of that time was like running around outside with neighborhood kids. And I, you, you can track this mm-hmm. back. You can find plenty of, I guess, damage done to us by not having a parent at the house all the time and, and experiencing that. But it's nothing compared to what's happening now. I mean, it, we, we've, we're, we've eliminated, uh, eliminated a lot of the organic social interaction out of our lives at this point. And I'm not sure that's a great thing. I mean, we, you talked earlier about advances in technology and how they affect people. I mean, creative destruction is one of them. New tech is one of them, but, and, and it certainly has uh, a marked impact on how we live. But this one is, again, it's, it's, it's quite a bit different. I mean, I just don't know. I know it's tough to be a parent these days. Everybody's working. There's a lot of people that are uh, single parents and stuff like that. But I still see quite a few people passing an iPad to their child uh, when they're two or three years old just to placate them and keep them quiet and stuff like that. And it really rubs me the wrong way. I mean, there's so much data out there to suggest how dangerous that is at this point. This episode of Citizens is brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee Company. Join the Black Rifle Coffee Club and get fresh roasted freedom delivered straight to your door. Black Rifle Coffee Company is veteran operated and supports America's military, law enforcement, and first responders. Get premium coffee delivered every month. Choose your favorite roast, rounds, and delivery schedule anytime you like. Members also get free shipping and access to exclusive partner discounts. The best value you're going to get from Black Rifle Coffee is the coffee club. As again, you can choose the roast, whether you're like light, dark, or medium. You can choose the texture. You can choose whether you want uh, ground coffee, whether you want to grind it yourself and get whole bean, or if you use a Keurig and you want the coffee rounds and the delivery schedule with a wider uh, array of options for that. Get 20% off your first order with the code CITIZEN. So go to blackriflecoffee.com, sign up for the coffee club, use the code CITIZEN, and get 20% off your first order. This episode of Citizens is also brought to you by ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros. Right now, Ghostbed is offering 40% off Ghostbed bundles where you get a mattress and an adjustable base. For everything else, 30% off if you use the code drinking bros at ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros. If you get the uh, 40% off deal, if you use the 40% off bundle deal, you're going to get uh, a mattress and all your stuff, your base, your sheets, your pillows, all this stuff for about 30 to 35 bucks a month. They've got a zero down, zero percent financing plan for up to 60 months, six zero months. That's five years, uh, about the lifespan of the average bed. So it works out great for you. Works out great for uh, the company. So go check it out. Go to ghostbed.com forward slash drinker bros. Whether you're in the market for a bed, 
uh, an adjustable base, whether you just need sheets or pillows or any of that stuff, they got the best. The mattress protector, the weighted blanket, they have everything you need there. 30% off everything. Use the code DRINKINGBROS at ghostbed.com forward slash DRINKINGBROS. Or if you need that adjustable base as well and the mattress, get the bundle and everything else you add onto that deal is 40% off. This episode of Citizen is brought to you by Babbel. If you have an upcoming summer trip abroad, my go-to travel hack is Babbel. Whether you're a seasoned traveler or embarking on your first adventure, communication is key to fully experiencing a new culture. That's where Babbel comes in. Babbel is the language learning app that sold more than 10 million subscriptions. Thanks to Babbel's addictively fun and easy bite-sized language lessons, there's still time to learn a new language before you reach your destination. Or maybe you're just trying to impress a hot fucking Latina chick. You know what I mean? You want to talk to her parents be like, hey, I'm legit, man. I'm not some, uh, I'm not some dum-dum. Um, with Babbel, you only need 10 minutes to learn a complete lesson. So you can start having real-life conversations in as little as three weeks. Uh, Babbel's expertly crafted lessons are built around real life uh, just to make it easier to learn. It's like mnemonic devices, right? So if you have practical conversations about things you think about all the time, you'll start thinking in the new language. Other language learning apps use AI for the lesson plans. Babbel lesson plans were created by over 150 actual language experts and voiced by real native speakers and not computers, which I hate. Uh, the teaching method is scientifically proven to be effective. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages. Uh, the speech recognition technology is probably my favorite feature. One of the things <clears throat> that happens, and if you've used the app, you know this, one of the things that happens when you go to the review part uh, after you learn a lesson, uh, you just press the microphone button and say the word back into uh, your phone or wherever you're doing it. And it'll tell you if you sound like an idiot or not, basically. Uh, there's so many ways to learn with Babbel in addition to the lessons. There are podcasts, games, videos, stories, even live classes. Um, and it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. So right in that three-week window, if you feel like you're getting something out of it or you're not, you can make that decision then. Start your new language learning journey today with Babbel. Right now, get up to 55% off your subscription when you go to babbel.com slash citizen. That's a new code, by the way, for you guys out there. Citizen instead of American now. B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash citizen for up to 55% off your subscription. Babbel, language for life. So I, I have three kids myself. Mm. They're 16, 13, and 11. So this is kind of my everyday life as well as something that, that I research. And, you know, it, it is, is an everyday struggle, you know, especially kids, um, you know, who are, say, third, fourth grade and beyond. They often have a school laptop. Mm. And you can't put parental controls on the school laptop, and too many of them allow you to access YouTube and things mm. like that. So, mom, I'm doing my homework. Are you really? You know, it's it, and you can't hover over them every single second right. of every day. So there, there's there's challenges. But with that said, there's stuff that you can do. You can put off your kid giving your kids a smartphone as long as you possibly can, and you can try to take steps to make sure that they're not on social media if that's not something you want them to do. Um, and I think we need more regulation in this area too, that we should raise the minimum age for social media to 16 and enforce that age limit. And how do you enforce something like that? Well, the good news is there's lots of um, companies who do age, age verification mm. now, third-party sites uh, that can do that uh, without even having to show an ID because that'd be the other options you have to show an ID, but that's not ideal. Um, so there's enough of those of those um, companies that do that type of work that they have their own trade association. So this is possible now. Hmm. Interesting. Um, 
now I, I want to dig a little deeper on this. Um, the, uh, why do you think it is more attractive to be on the device than to talk to people for, for, for younger kids? I, I think I see that in my generation to some degree as well, mm-hmm. but it seems that behavior seems to follow the depression or the exclusion from society and not necessarily be the cause of it. And now it seems like, you know, the tech might be the cause of it to some large degree. And I wonder what makes it so attractive to these kids. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a number of things. I mean, so for one thing, we have to remember social media is different from say, even watching TV or streaming. So they're both screens and sure, you know, TV has certain ways to try to keep you watching. But social media companies have poured billions, at least millions, probably billions of dollars into algorithms that keep people on the app. So, and that does, it happens for adults. Mm. And then imagine being 12 or 15. I mean, it's like MSG for your brain, right? It's dopamine. You get dopamine hits. Mm. And that's especially true during adolescence when being with your friends and communicating with your friends is paramount. So through that... Um, social media kind of won the battle. You know, why are kids not communicating through group group text, which would be safer mm-hmm. and not algorithmic? That's a good question. Yeah, probably, yeah, probably because it's social media companies they they want, and that's the problem. You know, they're they they're they're winning. They're making money off the backs of our kids. Hmm. And it seems like there's some pretty noticeable effects. Um, uh, uh, even beyond what we've already discussed. I mean, the, the depression and social anxiety and all this stuff are pretty clear, but um, it seems like it's making uh, our, our children uh, quite a bit more narcissistic. I mean, societies that have, societies where there's more decentralized power, typically people will opt in to helping other people. That's generally how it works because they don't feel like there's uh, uh, some other force causing them to do this they just just i mean it becomes very obvious in the absence of centralized power that we all have to help each other i think maybe that's just human intuition um but uh and when when there's authoritarianism typically people start thinking about themselves they become very narcissistic mm-hmm. and i don't know if that's a, that maybe that's a survival instinct right who knows but for the kids now it's like they're becoming narcissistic because I don't know why, right? Maybe it's having what you want at your fingertips all the time, forever, and and there's now no appetite for resilience or patience. Yeah, here's where we have some good news, at least from what we can tell in mm. samples of college students. Narcissism among college students peaked in about 2007 and has actually gone down since then. Hmm. And it's not entirely for a great reason. It's probably because, at least among young people, when you're depressed, you're not as narcissistic. Hmm. You're self-centered in a different way, but you're not narcissistic in the way of being more grandiose and thinking that you're awesome. So trade-offs is what we have. Now, individualism has certainly continued to grow. It's hmm. just it's taken different forms in each generation in terms of what you know each generation focuses on. So for Gen X, it was a lot of positive feelings, a lot more people going into business in the 80s versus more of the hippie boomer stuff mm-hmm. that had been happening before. For millennials, it was the idea of fame and money. And then for Gen Z, it's often, it's often around 
at least from what what they talk about, you know, diversity and inclusion um, and gender fluidity. Those are the things that they that they're focusing on that are very, um, very much continuing that trend of individualism that has happened with each generation just in a different way and do you think there's some uh i mean obviously you're you're uh a psychologist so you're going to give me both answers here but um there's a price to pay for that kind of stuff right where we i feel like a lot of the individualism has started to erode our epistemology a little bit like we can't seem to agree on what fucking reality is in a lot of ways right i know I, i don't know like people a lot of people in the media who are trying to, you know, be alarmist and shit talk about things like civil war, and national divorce. But it does seem like we're coming to a point where if we can't agree on what reality is, how do we even have a conversation? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think individualism has definitely played a role in that. But, you know, we, we also have to look at at technology and and how I mean, think about so I'm I'm a, I'm a Gen Xer. Mm-hmm. And when I was young very young, you know, in the seventies, there were three channels on TV and you got your news from one place and it was trusted. Then yeah. cable TV came in and that's when trust started to, to decline was with when Gen Xers were young, that's when it really started to go down. So that's why I put trust in that chapter of the book and it's just kept going because as soon as news has to be driven by entertainment, and ratings and now with the internet you know clicks negative news stories get more clicks and same thing you get more traction online with negative things uh, even if you're an individual using social media and what you know what is that done to us and then then we all end up getting our news in different places and we don't even agree on basic facts sometimes yeah there's certainly a price to pay for that i'm not i i've i've never done any uh research on this but i'm not sure that news prior to cable news was more accurate and above board necessarily like i i I, I, people assumed it was though right which is an important thing even if we're all wrong we're all wrong together so we can right we can we we can figure out that we're wrong and then change course or something like that but if we're all if we can't even have the conversation it becomes really difficult you mentioned your book it's uh generations the real differences between gen z millennials gen x boomers and silence and what they mean for America's future that comes out. Um, well, we're, this will publish on Monday. So this comes out tomorrow, I guess. Um, tell me about the book and what your goal with this is. Yeah. You know, my, my biggest goal in the, in the book is really understanding. So that so much stuff out there on generations is observations, maybe some educated guesses based on things here and there, but too often, it really hasn't relied on all of the amazing data that we have now. When I say data, I mean surveys, behaviors, you know, everything that that we have, um, you know, now. Because if we're really going to understand each other, let's go straight to the source and ask people mm. instead of guessing. So, part of this is, you know, I, I am a Gen Xer. In the early '90s, there was all this interest in in our generation, all these things written, and. It, some of them maybe had some grain of truth to them, but too many. Like I remember reading this one book that said, oh, Gen Xers have low self-esteem. I'm like, how do you know that? Did you, mm. did you have any survey data? Have you asked them and compared that to the responses of, say, boomers at the same age? And that's what I really tried to do in this book is take as much data as possible. So 24 data sets, 39 million people responded to one or another of these surveys. And a lot of that data goes back decades. It's really powerful because we can compare people at the same age and try to really understand what the differences are across 
all kinds of areas, you know, how we spend our time, our politics, our mental health, our family lives, sexuality, gender, you name it. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to have you read the whole book here, but I'm curious what I I have a lot of questions, actually, but some key findings, I guess, from generation to generation. What are what are some things that really popped for you? Yeah. So one thing, so I start, I start the book with the silent generations. So that's those born 1925 to 1945. So these are our senior citizens right now. And most people have never even heard of them. They're the generations right before the boomers. Mm. Well, they were the leaders of the civil rights movement and the feminist movement, not the boomers. So their most famous members, arguably Martin Luther King and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Mm. So silent generations are real misnomer. And they are a very resilient generation. Their mental health is better than the greatest generation before them and the boomers after them. Even during COVID, when they were the most vulnerable, their mental health was the best of all the generations. So they grew up in adversity, the Great Depression, World War II, and maybe that was actually a help to them later in life. So that was one thing that showed up. Um, for boomers, there's a strong perception that boomers are all rich and powerful and that they succeeded and then changed the system. So then younger generations couldn't succeed. They pulled the ladder up after they climbed it. And that's really not true. There's a lot of boomers, especially those who didn't get a college education who are really struggling. You know, they're struggling economically. Um, and perhaps as, as a result, um, the amount of drug overdoses and deaths of despair mm. among uh, boomers are really, really high. And, and that's, that's very concerning. We should write those off, you know, just because they're boomers or just because they're older. Um, for Gen X, my own generation, you know, I think Gen X is most distinguished by we were the last to have the analog childhood and also the first to have an internet young adulthood. Mm. So we kind of have a foot in both camps. You know, we're the middle child of generations. Everybody forgets about us uh, and we're mediating between the older boomers and the younger millennials. For millennials, the big surprise is that they're actually doing really well economically. The narrative for ages has been that millennials were all broke. They'd be the first generation and not do as well as their parents. And in the aftermath of the Great Recession, the numbers certainly absolutely back that up. But that perception hasn't been updated in a while. And when you update the numbers, median incomes for 25 to 44 year olds are all time highs. The Federal Reserve of St. Louis, you know, looked at wealth. They had concluded a few about I think it was for 20. 2016 data that millennials are falling way behind. You update that and they're neck and neck with Gen Xers and boomers at the same age. So this perception that millennials have really gotten the short end of the stick economically isn't true anymore. And I also have to mention those numbers are corrected for inflation. That's the question mm -hmm. I get. Well, yeah, of course, but an inflation corrects for housing costs and for healthcare and all the things that have gone up. It's just there's other things that are less expensive now um, that play into that and it equalizes out. Uh, and then for Gen Z, we were talking about the mental health. I think that's really the big story um, for, for Gen Z is, is the mental health crisis. Um, but I think the negativity about the world and about the country that has also flowed, you know, from depression is also a big part of the story that's, that's, you know, and that's more new with the, with, with this book is, you know, looking into that data, but you know, what is this going to mean for democracy going forward? Yeah, it's really interesting. I wonder about the data on millennials. Does that take into account 
the student loan debt situation and the fact that they have uh, quite a bit lower home ownership rates at the same age. They don't actually. Is they that don't. That was another big surprise. So their home ownership rate um, lags only slightly behind by a couple percentage points, hmm. just two percentage points compared to Gen Xers and boomers at the same age um, in, uh, in updated data. Now, with that said, that data is from 2020. The housing market has, you know, gotten gone up since then, and then interest rates started mm. to go up about a year ago. So the folks buying now are in a tough position. Sure. But up to 2020, homeownership looked pretty good, and then that the should correct over piece, time, you would think. Yeah, yeah, it just it corrects itself. Mm. Um, so then this the student loan piece, yeah. So that that's also a challenge. But those wealth statistics that the St. Louis Fed looked at do take uh, student debt into account. Mm. Interesting. So that's that's good news then, um, and maybe that maybe that speaks to why um, that generation, despite having experienced some pretty weird and traumatic shit, has a pretty positive attitude comparatively, especially comparatively to Gen Z, right? Well, it, you know, they used to anyway. So mm. as teens and young adults, they were much more optimistic. Um, not sure that's true anymore. Why do you think that is? I, I've got so uh, I have a lot of conversations. I ha- had one yesterday actually with a, um, a woman from Canada on the show, and and we were talking about motherhood and fatherhood, right? And how a lot of people have not engaged in that process. And I wonder if there isn't some psychological cost to pay for not satiating your biological purpose. You know what I mean? I get to to make it to put it lightly. I guess. I mean, we we all have these. Uh, uh, what, what I would consider to be probably the strongest biological urges that a human being is going to have, or maybe any creature is going to have is to procreate. Right. And then we've mm-hmm. kind of talked ourselves out of it, uh, to a large degree lately. And I wonder if there isn't some like significant and negative cost that we're paying for that. Yeah. It's an interesting theory. Cause that, that's, that's something I'm trying to figure out is, um, like depression rates, for example, we know that they went up among teens. We know they went up among 18 to 25 year olds. And until about 2015, 2016 or so, they were pretty much flat in say 26 to 34 year olds. Mm-hmm. I, I, I always want to call them prime age adults, but apparently that, that goes further up the age scale, but let's just call them millennials. And it really hadn't reached millennials. And then it started to go up for millennials as well. And it's kind of a mystery to me why, why that happened. So some of it is probably also the social media piece. They also mm-hmm. started spending less time with people face-to-face, but the decline wasn't as steep. It was only about a fourth of the size as it, uh, for, um, that it was for teens and younger adults. So that may be part of the puzzle. Yeah, I mean, I think a big portion of nihilism is feeling, one, not having any ownership over your uh, situation your, uh, in society, not feeling like you have equity in society, I guess. Not equity in the way that we use it now, but equity, like actual ownership. Um, and then purposelessness in young men especially has become mm-hmm. quite a problem. Now, we see we saw this. Uh, I didn't notice it much growing up. I didn't notice it much uh, through my 20s, to be honest, um, either. Uh, I mean, among people I knew, my friends and things like that. But once I went to the Middle East and saw these people that had more or less hopeless lives, um, I start, it started to click with me. Like, oh, this is what happens when you don't have a purpose in life. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You, you either go yeah. crazy or you turn inward and hate yourself. And that hate manifests itself in a lot of different ways, as I said before, primarily in, in some form of nihilism, either outwardly or inwardly violent. And I, it, it, it's... 
over the past few years kind of occurred to me that the more we seem to feel like we can outsmart nature, the worse off we become. Not that we should necessarily just, you know, capitulate to, to our biological programming or anything like that, but there's something to be said for uh, uh, flowing with the river and not trying to swim against the current, right? Yeah, I mean, you think about what humans really need to thrive, and we don't have a lot of those things on a regular basis in modern life. You know, a lot of exercise, time mm -hmm. in the sunshine, lots of face-to-face -face time with people. These are all you know, adequate sleep. You know, these are all really, really crucial things. And our modern lives interfere with each one of those on a regular basis. And that certainly could be one of the reasons why we have a lot more depression now. Yeah, I talked to uh, uh, Brett and Heather Hang about this, uh, Brett Weinstein, Heather Hang about this not too long ago, about how a lot of people are trying to, a lot of people trying to supplement with vitamin D right now, and it's not helping, right? Mm. It's not like the, the supplements they're taking aren't helping. So it's, uh, his, his Brett's theory was that we're, we're addressing the wrong issue. It's not that our body lacks vitamin D. It's that our body needs to be in the sun. You know what I mean? Mm. And, and vitamin D is just a byproduct of it almost. Yeah. Um, maybe there's other, other benefits to being outside, right. uh, aside from just vitamin D. Well, it's like, you know, that there was that German study, I think it was in 2015 or so about, uh, over the counter vitamins and how you're basically mm -hmm. it's nothing you're not doing anything um, yeah but the you know the later research and, and it's become quite popular uh, from 2017 to 19 time period <clears throat> where if you you know if you take supplements alongside uh, a lipid carrier of some sort like mct or something like that then it becomes quite a bit more effective right mm. because it can actually get into your bloodstream and i there, there's it's probably something to that effect where there are additional things that need to happen. I mean, it's just like 2 million years of human evolution. We kind of got programmed to operate a certain way mm -hmm. under certain circumstances right. and things have changed quite a bit. I mean, we didn't even have indoor right. lighting on, we didn't have indoor unnatural lighting other than flames until mm -hmm. what, 120 years ago or something like that. So yeah. our brains are still adjusting to that, to these blue screens and everything. That's right. Uh, it, what, that, that's got to play a big part in it as well. Have you done any research on, on that kind of effect? Yeah, so um, I've done a couple of papers looking at uh, sleep mm. and how that interacts with device use. And you, you see a big relationship there that, for example, the teens who are spending a ton of time on screens are not, they're not sleeping as much. Uh, and there's amazing research from sleep labs in this that show that if you're looking at those devices before bed, that, yeah, that's what happens. As the blue light shines into your eyes, tricks your brain into thinking it's still daytime and you don't produce the melatonin that you need. And then having the, the phone or a device in the bedroom overnight is just as bad or worse. You don't sleep as well or as long if you have the device available. So that's the number one piece of advice that I give mm. people in this area is get your phone out of your bedroom overnight. That's, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's for good. everybody. That's good Not advice. Not just your kids, yeah, but yeah. for adults too. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's so, you know, there's to be, um, I used to talk about this a lot in the middle of 2010s. Uh, before everybody became a self-help guru, but um, about how we tend to, as we uh, get more comfortable and more wealthy, we will we will become more comfortable as we become wealthier, and then we will go seek discomfort as a hobby almost. So we go camping, for example. Like people just used to live mm. there, you know what I mean? And now right. we're, now we're doing it. I don't know if it would be offensive to our ancestors, like you dick, like you. <laughs> 
just go know, go back right? inside the AC. But we do tend to uh, uh, people seek that out, and I don't think uh, I, I noticed it in the early 2010s among some friends of mine, the people who regularly went out kayaking and uh, uh, camping and things like that were quite a bit happier than people who just, you know, were on the grind as, as it were, and in the city all the time. And we're reaching the point now with the technology and stuff where we're going to have to start being quite a bit more intentional about these things. Right. Yeah. And that makes it harder. You Mm -hmm. know, you have to work it in. You have to find the time to go camping or be outside or take the trip, you know, be, or even be in the sunshine sometimes. Um, but you know, I think it does pay to consider that, to think, you know, what has historically made humans happy and TikTok is generally not it. Uh, certainly not. And it's, it's, uh, yeah, I think I saw you in a conversation, um, last week, maybe, I don't know. I was following some of your tweets and it was, uh, when, one engagement you had, some guy was talking about infant mortality rates are lower. We live longer as people, mm-hmm. but it's like, we live longer, but we're depressed now. Is that really yeah. what we, is it, was that the goal? I mean, not look, we, we should try to, I guess, no, live I as long and as healthy as possible. But, um, that seems like, that seems like a really bad deal. That seems like a bad trade to live longer, but be miserable <laughs> while you're doing it. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that, that's the issue. So, you know, I focused a lot on technology in this book and its benefits and its downsides. And that is one of its, the key benefit of technology is the time that it's given us. It's given us longer years of life and it has given us more time in the day because of, you know, labor saving devices, say like washing machines Mm -hmm. and refrigerators and faster transportation and all of these types of things. Yet, what are we doing with that time? I think that's what we have to think about those hours and even years that we have been given what are we going to do with that time? Are we going to go enjoy out the outdoors yeah. or speak to people? Or are we going to be sucked into social media? That's the choice that we have to make. It seems like uh, when I was a kid, um, I remember not my mom worked, but uh, a lot of the other moms of my friends didn't work. And it seemed like a lot of them just kind of plopped on the couch during the day when that when that normal busy work if you want to call it that went away um <clears throat> what's the how, how do we make ourselves more resilient to that kind of stuff because i don't think it's always obvious to people what they should do they just they that well oh, oh that's done now so i guess i'll just stand here and stare at the wall but i don't want to do that that's boring so i got to do something may as well turn on the television but that's not the solution mm-hmm. right so yeah any thoughts on that or like how we can kind of engage there yeah it, it's hard. I mean, that that's that's the thing, you know. I mean, talk about evolution again. The way that humans evolved is, yeah, if you don't have an immediate task, save your energy. Mm. But I think that's we do point. have to fight that. We have to, we have to fight that tendency. Mm. We have to think, you know, okay, yeah, but is this going to make me happy in the long run? I think it's that more long run perspective. And again, I think, you, you know, that's where we are fighting our evolution. Again, is that we're not always going to be thinking long-term, but in today's environment, I think you have to do that. You do, you have to be very intentional. And you, in your research, have you found like, I'm, I'm sure it's a little different for everybody. We're, we're very, as similar as we are as human beings, we're quite a bit different um, individually. Have you found a sweet spot, like 
uh, I, there's a lot of people out there that I think are snake oil salesmen telling you to do this or that these days. But is there a sweet spot for tech? Like I shouldn't spend more than X amount of time on my device or I shouldn't, yeah. I should leave it at this time so many hours before I go to sleep or, or wait until yeah. I, so many hours of being awake before I look at it or how does that work? Yeah, it, it's tough because, you know, we use our smartphones for so many things these days. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're like, well, we should set a limit. Well, what if you're a pizza delivery person and you're on the Maps app for 10 hours a day? Mm. You know, if you're using it for what it's good for, then we may not need the limits. But what is it good for and how much is too much? It, it, it is tough. Most sleep experts say that you should not be on your device within about an hour of bedtime. And then so read a book, do something else that's relaxing. Um, if you have a traditional TV that is across the room, then that helps with blue light. Uh, you can also wear orange safety glasses. Mm. That helps too. I do that. You're going to look like a welder in your pajamas, but you're going to sleep better. Um, so just you know, a lot of these things of just trying to say, okay, there's going to be times and places where we're going to use devices. And then we're also going to make sure that we're preserving time for all of these other things that are more likely to make us happy. So I, uh, the idea of leaving your phone outside of your room, I think well, while you're sleeping makes a lot of people, I can, I can feel them being becoming anxious even thinking about that right now but it is uh you know if we're people get into this death scrolling thing on social media now where they just for no reason you look up and it's 45 minutes later and like what exactly did you accomplish right there you just got uh nothing out of it but putting it down and walking away from it it's almost like you're fighting a mini addiction every time you do that you know what i mean and that's that is that is a very tall order for a lot of people i like our our mental strength these days is is not what it once was i think maybe it is actually maybe we just have more options now but either way that's that's a tough thing to ask somebody to do i think that getting the phone out of the bedroom is really nice because it's one action at one time mm. instead of all of those actions throughout the day that is harder and then what a lot of people say about the phone in the bedroom is but i have to have my phone in my bedroom because it's my alarm clock buy an alarm clock yeah yeah that's a pretty easy solution i think buying an alarm clock. Now I understand if you're like a parent of teenagers and, or whatever, and you, you need to have the device nearby to do it, but you know, you can just buy uh, a smartwatch and you can still get a notification without the ability to scroll social media, at least for now, maybe at some point right. in the future, you'll be able to do that. Um, right. I, one of, one of the other questions I wanted to ask you because I love, I used to do um, data intelligence for the government back in the day. So it's, it's always kind of, fascinated me the way be, being, I mean, it's just the essence of science, being able to study data and make predictions that you can then test. I, that's what I really like about it. Um, is there some common and maybe even predictable way that one generation will differ from the previous or future one? Mm -hmm. Like between, is, really. there, is there something common yeah. between how Gen X is different from millennial mm -hmm. and so on? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many different influences. I mean, I, the, the last chapter in the book is about the future, mm. but that's because you can, you know, look at these huge surveys that have been done of teens and get a little bit of view of what's going to come next. When you have data on 13 year olds uh, and 18 year olds, then you can look a little bit into the future and see, but it's not always a predictable cycle. You know, there's a old theory of generations that they come in cycles. And I think that's fallen apart with, the accelerating technological change that we're all living with. Uh, so it, it, it's tough because it, it just, I think about, you know, various predictions that have been made 
even though it's based on technology. So like 10 years ago, there was this big thing, oh, you know, massive online courses are going to replace college education. And that didn't happen. Mm. Uh, we're all going to be in driverless cars within five years. And that didn't happen either. Maybe it will eventually, but it hasn't happened yet. And now with chat GPT and all of the AI, there's the idea, okay, this is going to take everything over. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. Some of those predictions in the past have not been true. Mm. Um, what about this? What, if you had been, I guess, studying the millennial generation before the turn, I guess, to, to their more depressive and nihilistic state, would you have predicted it based on any of those factors at that time? I know it's, it's easy to go a back little and bit. Say yeah. That, so yeah. My, my first book was actually about the millennials. It's called Generation Me. It came out the first edition in 2006. And then I had a later edition in 2014. And I kind of saw in that later edition updating it, some of that turned toward a little bit of that turned toward the negative. And the way you maybe would have been able to predict it is that millennials expectations were so high they couldn't possibly be fulfilled hmm. and do you see anything in uh, uh gen z right now that might become pod like they're having a huge mental health crisis right now mm-hmm. but do you see yeah. the light at the end of that tunnel is that what, what should we be looking for i guess to like what's the key performance indicator we might notice that things are starting to turn around for them, I guess. Yeah, I, th- I think it would be things like depression and happiness. Depression is often where we have the, the the most data to see as they age into adulthood, if that keeps getting worse, stays the same or improves. Um, and I don't know. I don't know. I think it's a, it's very hard to predict which yeah. way that's going to go. And you said before, uh, sorry, I'm just trying to squeeze everything out of you before you get out of here. Uh, you said before that a lot of the times the generation, the, the generational attitude is almost centered around some major event that happened during that generation or uh, the popularity of the president, if it's political or stuff like that. Do, what was the major event for Gen Z that, that do, you, do you think, aside from, or I, I can't say aside from because maybe it was the case, but is it just the social media and the smartphones or is there some other major act, like individual event that may have yeah. spurred some of this stuff? Well, I mean, the COVID-19 pandemic, for sure, you know. But that was, was an amplifier, right? Because was the, right, trend, it was an the trend was already right, going that direction. Right. It wasn't the original cause. But, you know, for, for lots of other things in terms of some of their attitudes around politics and trust in the government, I think it had an impact, probably one that wasn't positive. And is there some direct correlation, do you think, between trust in the government uh, and, and overall happiness? Do you think distrust mm-hmm. in the government maybe – I guess attacks your, your, your sense of belonging in a community. Maybe, I don't know what that might yeah. be. I think it's not, it's not quite as crucial for teens because mm. teens are much more focused on their own social worlds. Mm. But once you're talking about young adults and when you're building a career and building a family and thinking about how everything that goes on in the political arena affects that. Yeah. If you are living in a country where there's just a lot of, distrust in government, it feels like things are falling apart. That can absolutely have a, a, an impact on mental health. And I think, I think that, I think we're already seeing that. Hmm. Yeah, that sucks. I mean, cause I'm not sure that there's going to be anything to turn that around really, to be honest, it seems like we just yeah. keep getting worse. Uh, uh, um, you, you also said that it seems like things with tech now, there used to be these generational cycles. Um, and, and with tech, it's, it's become a little bit different. Um, have you ever read that book, The Fourth Turning? Are you familiar with that? Yes. Um, mm-hmm. 
So they That's they, what I'm referring to. Yeah, yeah. That, they, that's the guy with the with the cyclical theory. Yeah, yeah. They they did predict quite a bit of the nonsense that's going on right now, but I'm not sure that like the 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 next stage of this according to their theory would be that things are going to markedly improve and there's a whole mm-hmm. new generation of resilient people, but right now that group mm-hmm. of people is deeply nihilistic and depressed. And that right. wasn't the case before, right? So Maybe they need to mm-hmm. update the book. I guess it was written in '97 or '98, so it's been a while. Yeah, and I think I think he is. I think he is going to update it. But I think that that's the issue is that cyclical theory is really falling apart because Gen Z is supposed to be like the silent generation. Well, what the silent generation is is you know so they're known for some political activism. Mm-hmm. So maybe Gen Z is mirroring that to an extent. I think that's true. But on a lot of other essentials, day to day life. No, completely, completely different. Silent Generation married younger and had children younger than the generations before or after them. Hmm. Gen Z is doing exactly the opposite. Interesting. And uh, that's that's cool that he's writing a new book, though. I'm I'm very curious to see what that's going to look like. And I'm very Mm -hmm. excited to read yours as well. I got it. Uh, I I ordered it today, so that'll that'll be coming soon. Give me like a brief synopsis of the book and tell people where they can find it and where they can find you and your research before we get out of here. Sure. So the, the book is Generations, but all six living American generations. Um, flip to the chapter on your generation, your kid's generation, if you want to skip around. <laughs> um, but it's really about trying to understand each other better and understand how technology has really had a huge impact on all of us. Um, so the books of it available everywhere books are sold and I have a website if you want to look more about my research and frequently asked questions about generations and all kinds of other stuff so it's it's genetwangy.com j-e-a-n-t-w-e-n-g-e.com well great look I really appreciate you coming today it's been a fascinating conversation I I really enjoy uh this type of research honestly it is uh it's nice where it's all, you know, look, there, there's a lot of, um, I, I guess, theory involved. So it's not all ones and zeros, but it's it's quite a bit more to the point than some of the other conversations we're having right now. So I appreciate the work you're doing and appreciate you coming today. Thanks very much. Yes, ma'am. And thank you all for listening. This has been Citizen.